For the rest of you, I invite you to open your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. Or if you don't own a Bible, if you're visiting here and this is all new to you and uh, you don't even have a Bible, which is great, fine. Uh, we have a few on the back table. Love to give it to you. Uh, that's our gift to you, but, but it'd be good to have the text in front of you. So if you've been... Um, if you've read the Bible much at all, or if you've been a Christian for a number of times and it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. It's that moment when you hear something from the Bible and you think to yourself, it says that? Like, really? Uh, you know, often we think that because the Scriptures will say something that so, sounds so otherworldly to us. Things that strike against some deeply held and often um, non-reflective assumptions that we have. We just think, well, th- isn't this self-evident? And the Bible says something contrary to that. And so what we're doing this summer is we're taking this summer to look at these things. What the Bible says about things like human dignity, uh, the, the place of work in our lives, um, marriage and singleness, money, and of course, sexuality. Now, even saying that, I know that many are probably squirming right now. Some of you probably because you're afraid of what I might say, uh, something that might ruin this church for you, right? Uh, Others of you, maybe it's because you're thinking sexuality shouldn't be talked about in church. I mean, that's, a lot of us have that kind of going on in the back of our heads, or even still, maybe you've had a good bit of sexual brokenness in your past, and and you fear the wagging finger from the thumping pulpit. Uh, To all, I would say this, sex is part of God's good creation. His word addresses it, and it celebrates it. And his grace abounds to the broken, like me. So if you have your place in 1 Corinthians 6, let's try and hear God's word this morning. Our our habit here is to stand in honor of God's word. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 20. This is God's very word to us. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one with the other. Ah, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's very word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is a a fearful thing when we challenge deeply held idols. And this morning, we engage with one of our cultures, and for many of us, ours, because we're part of the culture, one of our culture's deeply held idols. We pray, Father, for grace for all of our hearts, that you would soften them to hear from you, make us open receivers of your word. Lord, I pray that at the end of all of this, that Jesus and what he has done 
would come to the fore, that you would let the one who speaks fall away because you, our Lord Christ, alone hold the words of eternal life. So we pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Have a seat. Man, we, we have heard a lot about sexuality the last couple weeks, have we not? Believe it or not, um, the, the session sets the sermon schedule like 18 months in advance, so this was not planned, like when exactly the, this set of sermons took place. This is not reactionary in the sense that they have been determined by recent events um, at all. So I just want to like, kind of lay that out from the beginning. Um, before we get into the passage, let me just say a little bit of the reality, uh, a little bit of our reality, okay? Now, we can argue about when it started or why it started, but when we talk or think about sexuality, there are some basic assumptions that all of us have. All of us in the West, at least. I don't think it's worldwide, but certainly all of us in the West that we bring to the table. And where the church has ultimately failed in regards to speaking about, about sexuality is that we have never challenged those assumptions, Instead, we just adopt them, baptize them, and try and spiritualize them to give you some way that actually those are true, but only within this context, right? And so, here are a few of those for us, things that we need to keep in mind. This is what most of us bring to the table when we think about sexuality. First and foremost, we think that sex is for me, you, the individual. It's all about your personal fulfillment, your pleasure, and your needs being fulfilled, or fulfilling your expectations, right? That's where all the talk about sexual compatibility falls in. When we talk about, you'll hear this, or maybe you've thought this, like with a couple, are they they sexually compatible? We've got to make sure of all that. Because that's what sex is about you. Am am I being fulfilled? Am I getting my needs met? So that's one of them. The second one is that sex is just physical. And this actually, we can uh, find a root for this. This comes from, uh, at least in in its modern form, from Sigmund Freud. Uh, And some of you are familiar with Freud. Um, my favorite line from Goodwill Hunting is, is uh, when um, Robin Williams' character talks about Freud, and he says, and come back next week to talk about Freud and how he did m- enough cocaine to kill a horse, which I think is, I don't know, the, this image you have of Sigmund Freud is this like, gentleman, and that's, that's reality. Anyway, um, Freud started this, this idea that, that the expression of our sexuality is simply a physical drive, much like hunger, like um, breathing. You just need to do it. You, just, you need to have it. Because if not, like you, you know, you, that's, your, that's your id trying to get out. And, and it's just your superego that's imposed on you and repressing you from the outside. Expectations from other people that are keeping that back. And if you don't believe me, um, uh, j- just think about the ways in which we, um, we think about, say, young people and sexuality. It's just going to happen, right? We'll get to that in a second. Uh, another one is that sex is primarily about pleasure. So another way to say that is the goal of our sexuality is orgasm. Whoa, he just used the O word in church. I know, right? If you look at any women's magazine on the way to the checkout line, you will know that what I just said is true, right? Seven uh, ultimate moves for, you know, this. Like, as if... In the 21st century, we came up with new things, right, that, that weren't done previously. But now, you know, Cosmo figured them out. Here's the thing. The dirty little secret here, if you ever, if you ever actually pay attention to this, is that those magazines, which are written for women, are giving tips on men. 
Which means at the end of the day, they're, they're saying something different. What they're saying is the goal isn't so much pleasure as it is his pleasure, which really means to keep him around. The last one that I'm going to mention in terms of these assumptions that we're going to address is the assumption that sex is uncontrollable. Like I said, the notion that there's something equivalent to breathing. It just happens, and it, 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 it therefore can't be stopped. Now, we affirm these as a culture in everything from film to political speech, and we affirm them in the church in everything from uh, youth retreats and conferences to marriage books. And, and what we do is we baptize them and tell them, don't, here's God's design for things, so don't worry. As long as you stay chaste until marriage, your pleasure will be ultimate. Right? Come on. Y'all been to those youth rallies. I know. This is what we do. We adopt the assumptions. We baptize them and say, Christian. But the problem is these assumptions aren't Christian, nor are they scientific. They're f- simply faith statements. And they have nothing to do with our faith. So what is Christian sexuality? That's the question that we're taking to the text this morning. And like I said, we're going to deal with this in three, three weeks or three sermons. Next week uh, will be another one. And then um, one, in early August, early mid-August, we'll have the last one. Um, but here's the way we're going to take this. We're going to, we're going to look at this text in three ways. There's an outline, if that's helpful to you. We're going to look at um, the situation, specifically in Corinth, where Paul is writing. We're going to look at the confrontation, what it is that he's actually saying to them, and then the application. How do we take that and then make it, uh, or, or somehow put that into practice in our own lives, okay? So let's start with the situation, okay? Looking at then and now. Uh, as soon as we start talking about sexuality in the Bible, there's an immediate assumption that almost all of us have that that uh, such an ancient book can't possibly relate to us today, right? Because our situation is so much more complex than the ancient world. I mean, look, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, this letter that we're reading from today, in the early 50s. Not the 1950s, right? The 50s. So how can something written so long ago actually be something that matters today? Things have, haven't things changed a lot? That's a a valid question. The answer is, well, yes and no. To get at that, though, let me tell you a little bit about Corinth, some some background. Corinth uh, is a Greek city um, that existed in the Mediterranean, in the Roman Empire, at the crossroads of uh, two major trade routes. Okay, so if you're thinking about ancient Corinth, this is, scholars will tell you, this is about as metropolitan, as cosmopolitan, as diverse, as pluralistic a city as there ever was in the Roman Empire. Uh, most scholars today will, will uh, recognize that it was a, it was a place of uh, upward mobility uh, because it was a, a city that had been destroyed and then refounded. It didn't have a lot of landed gentry, like people who, who had been there for a long time and owned a bunch of property and so had uh, generational wealth. It was very wealthy, but the people who made that wealth were, were um, businessmen and women. They had, they had uh, created their own wealth. They had pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. They had made something of themselves. So it was a very wealthy city full of business people, full of lots of religious diversity, cultural diversity. People are coming in from Asia and moving into the rest of the Mediterranean, into the, into the European world. Um, they're moving up from Africa and moving. In. So it's a, it's a very pluralistic city. Scholars will compare it today to Manhattan. You think Corinth? Think the ancient equivalent of New York City. And one of the things that Corinth had a reputation for was a rather loose view of sexuality. 
As a matter of fact, in the, the Greek world, they actually had a verb to Corinth. It, was, it had become a verb because they were so, and it, it meant to be sexually loose. Um, now, some of that is because of the older city that had been destroyed of the same name, but it was still fair in this one. And, and you have to understand that that's saying an awful lot because we are talking about the Roman Empire, right? Not the Victorian one, right? Nobody was walking around with their shirts buttoned up to here and saying doth all the time. Like, this is, this is the Roman world. Sex is on the front page of everything. Because you see, in the Greek and Roman world, sexuality was way more out in front even than it is today. And we find that hard to believe, but it's true. Nearly every pagan religion of which Corinth had a bazillion temples involved some form of temple prostitution, uh, some form of, of ritualized, religious-sized sex trade. In other words, you want the God to do something for you, you have to put in your offering, if you know what I mean. Okay? And this was everything from fertility gods like, like um, Diana or Artemis, depending on whether you're Latin or Roman, or, um, or the love god, goddess, Aphrodite, Venus. Okay? It went everywhere. And Corinth actually had a large, very large temple to Aphrodite, the love goddess, very prominently placed in their city. So religiously sanctioned prostitution, and when I say that, I mean both heterosexual and homosexual prostitution, was normal. Not on the outskirts of society. Normal. Then you have, in addition, the fact, like I said, you have an upwardly mobile society, especially in Corinth, they're very wealthy. And um, some of you know this because maybe some of you have experienced this, but people who are not generationally wealthy tend to like to flaunt their wealth because it's what they have, they, they have somehow made it for themselves and they want to show everyone. Corinth was, Corinth was big on this. And, and in, in, in the Roman Empire, if you were a wealthy person, a wealthy male, let me change that. If you were a wealthy male, okay, there was a certain... Um, expectation. You would have a wife to raise your children, to create heirs for you. You would have a concubine to take to parties. And then you have slaves to play with. Normal. We would look at someone like that today and think scumbag, right? Uh, at least if they weren't on entourage. Okay, anyone other than that. But for most of us, we would think, Ugh, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with you that you would do that? We think the sexual revolution invented free love, but the Romans had us beat, friends. So when we hear Paul speaking to a congregation full of brand new Christians, right? He planted this church. These were, these were, these were not like they generation. They grew up in church. They were, no, no, no. They had never even heard of the God of Israel. They never heard the name of Jesus until just probably a few years ago. We hear Paul talking to them about sexuality. This is what they are coming out of. This is what is all around them. And this is what is their norm. This is what is their norm something many of us can't even imagine. And so knowing this does two things for us. On the one hand, it speaks against the arrogance that thinks that today is so far worse than any other time in all of human history. Oh, I can't believe things are so bad today. They aren't. I'm not saying they aren't bad. I'm saying they're not worse. <laughs> okay. On the other hand, it also argues against the notion that the Bible is naive to the issues of our day. So what we're going to find in a few seconds is that the same questions and statements that we make today in the church trying to justify our unbiblical views on sexuality, the exact same ones they did. The exact same ones. 
it is a strikingly similar situation to the one we're in today. Okay? Now, uh, saying that, let's look at the text itself to see these convenience slogans. Okay? Before I read them, let me explain what's happening. Like I said, Paul planted this church. He planted the church in Corinth. And then because he was, uh, his, his job, his calling, his vocation from the Lord was to go plant more churches, he planted the church, got leadership set, and left. And he went and planted more churches. And some, at some point during his continued travels, he received a report. Everybody likes to hear how their you know, work is doing when they've left it. And so he gets a report from, from these folks um, saying, here's what's going on. And basically what was going on is this. This church is seriously jacked up. You cannot read the book of 1 Corinthians and, and have an idyllic view of the early church. You've got, you've got people who are opposed to one another because they follow one teacher and they follow another. You've got, you've got uh, the rich who are shaming the poor in the congregation. You've got, um, Paul says even a couple chapters before this, or the, the previous chapter before this, you've got a guy who is uh, sleeping with his stepmother and they're celebrating it. Paul's like, bah! Right? So this church is messed up. Um, and scholars will tell you that what's going on in, the ver- in these verses is that Paul is responding to things that are being said by people in the congregation. Okay? That's why I call them catchphrases. These catchphrases, and you'll see them in your, in your text, in your bulletin, and, and on the screen, uh, because they've got quotations around them. Many of our Bibles do the same thing because they're recognizing that. These catchphrases are responses likely because the behaviors of these folks have been challenged, okay? So, in other words, you have a group of people within the congregation, probably have a, a sexually libertine view, a little, a little like uh, the, the, the free love crowd, okay? And they're doing something. Another group has tried to challenge them on that, and they're responding with these phrases, okay? That clear? The first one is this. Everything is permissible for me. And they say it twice, right? Everything is permissible for me. And Paul gives two responses to this. Not everything is beneficial, and, but I won't be dominated or mastered or, or something of that nation by anything. Now, that one seems pretty obvious, but let me make it really clear. Remember, these are not catchphrases from the culture. These are catchphrases from the church. These are Christians, self-professed Christians, who are throwing out these catchphrases. And so here's what's probably happening. Like I said, you've got a group who's got a rather liberated view towards sexuality. Another group, probably the church leadership, is trying to correct them. How do church leaders generally try and correct other people? Well, they use the Bible. For the, for the Corinthians, the Bible would have been, because the New Testament hadn't been completed yet, the Bible would have been the Old Testament. Right? And the response that they get back is, everything is permissible for me. Another way of saying that is, grace Jesus kept the law for me, so I don't have to. The second catchphrase is, uh, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God's going to destroy both. Okay? Now, on one level, what this means is, look, sex is purely physical. It's purely physical. It's just like eating. Your stomach's made for food. Your stomach's made to eat. You have other things that are made for sexuality. Very simple. And in the end, uh, the body doesn't matter anyway. God's going to destroy them both. Okay? This nation is very Greek. Okay? This is, this is a great example of the cultural assumption 
uh, being baptized and made Christians. Because Greeks thought sex was purely physical. It was just another drive. And, and from there, the Greeks had two different ways of dealing with that. You had some that said, because it's purely physical, uh, it's morally neutral. So it doesn't matter. A lot of our culture thinks that. Others thought, because it was a drive, it was a base drive. Do you know what I mean by that? It was, a, it was, a, um, it was bad. It was dirty. It was ugly. And so shouldn't be done unless absolutely necessary. That's the assumption of a lot of traditional religious folks. So you have, you have the same assumption, sex purely physical, going in two different directions, but it's all stemming from the exact same assumption. Something's purely physical. Now here's the other thing that was going on that I want to make clear on this. Re- remember, this is a response to other Christians challenging this group and probably with the Bible. And so that means that the mention of food is really important. Because the most, easily, the most controversial topic in the early church, the first couple hundred years of the the church, well, we'll say the the first century of the church, one of the most controversial topics was, what are we allowed to eat? You're like, what? No, no, it was a big deal. Why? Because Christianity came from out of Judaism, and Judaism has certain rules on what, what foods you can and what foods you can't eat. And so here we have uh, answering, you know, we have a group answering a challenge about sex with a statement about food is to say this. We don't follow the Jewish rules on food. Why would we with sex? That sound familiar? You don't follow Leviticus on shellfish. Why should you follow what it says on your sexuality? If you're on any blogs, you will have heard that statement. This is exactly what's going on. In other words, the catchphrases amount to grace. All of us sin, but I have faith, so I don't need to keep the law. And, and why should I listen to the Bible on sex when you told me I, I can eat shellfish whenever I want? These are the same arguments put forward today. Okay? Now, let me say one thing quickly about how Paul addresses these before we move on. Do you notice what Paul doesn't do is quote the Bible? Did you notice that? That's not what he does. He could have. He knew it really well, but that's not what he does. However, he also uh, doesn't say anything that's not in there, but what he does is he challenges the Corinthians. Instead of quoting chapter and verse to them, he challenges them to think Christianly about what they are doing. Think Christianly about this. In other words, he addresses the assumptions. They say, I'm free to do all, all things, perhaps, but how will you flourish? What's going to help you flourish? And, and who are you following, exactly? Sex is physical. Well, granted. But your bodies weren't made for sexual immorality. Bodies were made for the Lord. Now, of course, that raises a question, right? Because some of you are thinking, okay, all right, preacher, I got this. But how do you define sexual immorality? Right? That, that's what we love to do. We move into casuistry. Like, okay, well, what, what is this exactly? That's the real question, isn't it? Here's the thing. Every New Testament Greek dictionary and every serious commentary agree that the, the word that Paul is using in the Greek, which is porneia, it's where we get pornography from, that Paul uses this word the same way all first century Jews would have used it. Okay? And all first century Jews would have used this word to describe any expression of sexuality outside of the covenanted relationship of a marriage between a man and a woman. Anything. Whether that involves another person or not. 
You with me? That is sexual immorality. That is the word that they're using. Now, we, you know, it, it, unfortunately, we have all this baggage that comes with that, right? Because if, if you uh, had any ex- exposure to the King James, that word sexual immorality is fornication. Those fornicators. Like, that's what we get across. And, and so we, we have all this baggage with it. But in reality, purely on the definition level, what Paul is talking about is any expression of sexuality outside of the covenanted relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. Anything else would have been unheard of. There are other words he could have used. Other words he could have used to mean adultery or very specific things. He uses the general one and he says, your body is not for that, it is for, for the Lord. Again, let me, let me restate this and be clear on something. That understanding of sexual immorality was simply assumed by all Jews during his day. This is not Paul making this up. This is, as a matter of fact, I could take you into the Gospels and show you this is exactly what Jesus thought too. Now, that begins the confrontation. Let's continue it. Let's look at the confrontation by looking at the character and the content for sex. Look down at verses 16 to 18. Paul says, Don't you know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. All right, now stop there. First, let's deal with this weird phrase of joining to a prostitute becoming one flesh. One way to read that is to say that what he's saying is that when you uh, join yourself to a prostitute, there's a physical union between you and the prostitute, right? And we would expect that if we think sex is purely physical. Of course, if that's what Paul means, uh, his phrase is meaningless. It's something like this. Don't you know that when there's a physical union between you and a prostitute, there's a physical union? Like, yeah, okay. Um, there's a lot more going on there, though. Because you see, the Bible's view is that sex is way more than just physical because the, body's, the Bible's view is that you and I are way more than just physical. Way more. Like I said earlier, it was Freud who began the argument that we are sexual beings. The Bible says we are spiritual beings. We are made in God's image. And that is why Paul gives a parallel in verse 17 about joining yourself to Christ. When you come to faith in Jesus, when you're joined to Jesus by faith, it is not one aspect of you or another, physical or uh, spiritual or physical or emotional. It is total. It's a total union. And that's why Paul mentions this thing about marriage, the two becoming one flesh. He actually does quote a little bit of the Bible there. He's quoting that from Genesis, right? The two becoming one flesh. Because that union isn't physical. It is the personal union of two people on every level of your life. Uh, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about marriage uh, and, and then singleness after that. But marriage is being united to another completely. United to them socially, emotionally, legally, even economically. That kind of union is what is meant to provide the safety within which sex can function and flourish. And so sexuality is meant to be both an expression of this kind of union and something that reenacts or even recommits the same kind of covenanted union. Here's what I mean. And if this is helpful for you, great. And if it's not, it weirds you out, forgive me. Sex is like a sacrament. It's kind of like this. I know some of you are like, blasphemy. Just stay with me, okay? It is an act that points beyond itself to a greater reality while at the same time communicating that reality for us. Follow me. It is being before another person, completely vulnerable, completely exposed, 
completely open. It is giving yourself to the other for the other in the uniqueness of how you were made. And at the end, it is finally fully resting in that person. That is what marriage is supposed to be. And so sexuality within marriage becomes just like how the the Lord's Supper is meant to both um, be a picture of our relationship with Jesus, body broken, blood poured out, coming, needing to be filled, needing to be uh, needing our hungers filled, and he satisfies and, 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 and gives us his status, like all of that. But also, as we know from the scriptures, that it's not just something that's a bland picture, but actually communicates that to us. There's grace available here. Sexuality is the same thing. Okay, now some of you may be thinking right now, okay, Rick, I get that, but, but this, this passage is talking about a prostitute, right? I, I get that that's bad, but what, what, what about when it's someone you love, Right? Now, here's the thing. We only ask that question because uh, we have been shaped by romanticism. And romanticism tells us that nothing is wrong if it's an expression of love, right? It's a very romantic notion. It's just not very biblical. It's not the Bible's view at all. Even more, though, here, here's what I would argue with you. Here's what I would claim. What you are saying when you, when, when you, have, uh, when you express your sexuality outside of marriage is, I want your body but I don't want your life. I'm willing to give you my body, but I'm not willing to give you who I am. Now you tell me, is that loving? Is it? I mean, I would argue that's not loving at all. I love you, but not enough to legally bind myself to you. Just enough to use you to get what I want. I love you, but not enough to make myself vulnerable before you because at the end of the day, you might leave me and take half of my stuff. But I will give you my body. Can we just be okay with that? Sex is meant to be an expression of and an act to foster the kind of relational intimacy that marriage was designed for, friends. So the first way that Paul says to rethink the issue Christianly is to talk about what sex really is. It's not just physical, and it's not simply for pleasure. It's, 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 a whole, it's, it's about our whole person, and it's for intimacy. But Paul is a realist, and so he furthers this by talking about union and kingship. Okay? In verse 15, Paul talks about being a member of Christ. Right Now, when you and I, because we're Americans, when we think about member, we think about like voluntary organization, right? I, like, I joined myself. I'm a part of a group. That's not what this word means. This word means, like, organ, like bodily organ. You are a part of Jesus, in other words. Like, you are, you are united to him in this way. And so Paul's point is, if you know Jesus, if you, are, if you have faith in Christ, you are taking Jesus with you into that encounter. You don't leave him at the door. There's no, like, well, I'm going to just put my Christianity aside for a minute. I'm going to do my thing. Come back put my Jesus suit back on, and we're good. No, he says, no, no, you're united to Christ. That would be like saying, well, no livers allowed. Put it on a table, walk in, do your thing, come out, and go, got my liver back. Like, you can't do that. And that's, you are a part of Christ. And then in verse 19, he gives, he gives us another don't you know, which I think is great. Don't you know? Like, he says it three times in this passage. I love it. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And then he says, you're not your own, you were bought at a price. 
here's what he means. If you are a Christian, if you've seen yourself as a sinner in, in rebellion against God and sought his mercy in Jesus alone, then you have given up your supposed autonomy. Everything is permissible for me? Paul says, not if Jesus is your Lord. Because he makes the rules, and though he did say in Mark 7, verse 19, that all foods were clean, never once in any of the recorded words of Jesus do we have him saying, sex no longer matters. Go do what you want. Never. You see, friends, and this is important, so check in if you can. Being a Christian is about repentance, not about intellectual assent. We are all sinners. We all sin every day, sometimes purposefully. Most of the time, my guess is, in ways we don't even, we don't even see. We just have bl- huge blind spots. We don't even know we're doing it. Someone may call us and we're like, really? I can't believe I did that. I'm sorry. Like, that wasn't, I, I didn't even know that happened. Uh, we are all sinners. So can you be a Christian and a sinner? <laughs> of course, I hope so. I mean, if not, Jesus was the only Christian. But can you be a Christian who is unwilling to repent of something the Bible says is against the character of God? In other words, can you be a Christian who says, Jesus, rescue from me my, from my sins, but I don't really like what you say on this one. Or I'm really just not willing to give this one up. Or don't you want me to be happy? Look, I'm not going to tell you it's impossible to be a Christian and have that attitude, but what I am going to tell you is this. The New Testament consistently warn us, warns us that such an attitude is most likely a sign that you don't really have faith in Jesus at all. Because we have been bought by the blood of Jesus, we are to glorify God with our bodies. Notice, because we have been bought. What he's not saying is, therefore, go uh, glorify God with your body so that he'll think you're good enough to purchase you. He says, because you've been bought, glorify God with your body. Now, what I want to do now is take a minute for specific application. Some of you are like, woohoo, yay, can we do that? No, really, can we just skip that? Look, we could talk for weeks about this. And, and like I said, there's going to be some more next week, and there's going to be more when I get back from my vacation. But what I want to do now is simply unmask some of the things regarding our prevalent view of, of sex. Most of us justify our thoughts on sex with the idea that as long as people love one another, it's okay, Right? Like I said before, this is born out of the notion that sex is about self-expression. That it's about expressing yourself. Uh, but, but the Bible's view is very different. It speaks very differently about sex. A Christian view of sex is like the Christian view of, well, everything. It's not about you. It's not about me. Here's what I mean. Sex isn't about self-expression. And it's not about self-gratification. The scripture tells us that sexuality is about self-donation. It's about the other. This is what Paul means later in this letter, just the next chapter, when he tells husbands, your body is no longer your body, it's your wife's body. Your body is not your body, it's her body. What he's saying is, view your sexuality as for your spouse. Your sexuality is for them, and vice versa. And so when we pursue sexual expression outside of marriage, what we are saying is, I want your body, but not you as a person. I'm willing to give you a piece of who I am, but I refuse to give you all of me. In other words, it's selfish. Let's just call it what it is. 
It's selfish. It's about, uh, it's about love, but not about love for the other. It's about love of, of yourself. So let me be clear. If you are a Christian this morning and not married, Paul says, you are not your own. Now, let me reiterate. If you're a Christian this morning, Paul says, you are not your own. Glorify God with your body. God is calling you to repent of refusing to love the other enough to give yourself fully. Okay? Either Jesus is Lord of your life or not. Make sure you're hearing me on that. Either Jesus is Lord of your life or not, but let's stop pretending you can ride two horses with one, you know. Okay? That's not all, though. Because you see, to leave it there promotes this myth that context is the only thing that matters when it comes to sexuality. Right? Some of y'all married folks are like, where, where are you going with this? Because we've come to believe that so long as you're married... Gates are open, and it doesn't really matter how you practice your sexuality after that, because you're married, and all God really cares about is whether or not there's a ring on your finger that makes everything okay. It doesn't. If sex is about self-donation, then sex inside of marriage that is all about you, about your needs, your desires, your fulfillment, is likewise selfish and sinful. Did you hear me on that? If you, are, if you are using sexuality to say, I'm getting my needs met, or, or, or I'm, I've got to feel desired, and you're using your sexuality to get those things, that's a sinful use of sexuality within marriage. Listen, I think... Yeah, I, I think the very reason men and women have differing sexual desire levels and different sexual response levels, you know what I mean? Like, like desire levels, that makes sense. But response levels, like getting the engine going. Like I, I think the reason why men and women have different uh, patterns on both of those is God's way of training us in how to love. Sexuality, like all other parts of marriage, is about discipleship. It's, about, it's not about, well, I'm never going to be lonely anymore. I'm always going to be sexually fulfilled. Marriage is about learning how to follow Jesus. And sexuality is the same way. Because I have to put aside my desire level and my response level at times so that I can love my wife. And she's got to do the same thing for me. This is what it's about. So again, let me be clear. You can sin sexually while being married. If your sex life is all about getting your needs met or making you feel desired and special, then your sex life is about you. And let me be clear on another thing. Misusing and abusing our sexuality apart from how God intended it harms. It's not neutral. It harms. This is what Paul means in verse 18. Right? In verse 18, he says, uh, all other sins, someone does it outside of the body, the very way that sins, is, sins sexually sins against his own body. Like what, He is laying a qualitative difference between sexual sin and all other sins, but he's not doing it in such a way of going, God's going to judge you worse. Judgment is what it is. Okay? All sins deserve, they're all betraying God. They all bring guilt. What he's saying is, sexual sin 
breeds damage. That's different. There are different consequences, different things that happen that all others don't. It leaves such damage in its wake. But listen, God made sex. Believe it or not, God loves sex. You realize Laura read for us Song of Solomon earlier. That entire book of the Bible is erotic love poetry that God wrote. Okay? He loves this stuff. But it's got to dwell where he designed it to. Okay? What I hope the last point made clear is that there is no one in this world, and especially no one in this room, who is not broken in their sexuality. Now, I say that, and some of you get wicked offended, right? You're getting offended because you associate sexual brokenness with certain practices and behaviors. But think with me, okay? especially if you've been here for a while. You, you, hopefully you know where I'm about to go with this. If you believe that all of us are broken in every aspect of our being, then why would you think that somehow that skipped over your sexuality? It's like, my emotions, my intellect, my will, boop, hopped over the sexuality to go to something else. No, every part of us. Your brokenness may not look like promiscuity or sexual addiction, but that doesn't mean it's, it isn't just as broken. You hear me? Just as broken. But there is hope. Since Jesus died for the sexually broken like me and like you. I know we've been taught that we cannot be fully human unless we express our sexual desires, but the gospel says that is not true. I had a professor in seminary who said it slightly different, but this is a sermon. No one ever died from unresolved sexual desires. It sounded so much better when he put it the way he did, but like I said, it's a sermon, so I can't do that. Sex is good, friends, but it is not God. You were made for the Lord, not for sexuality. What we need, ultimately, is a restored relationship with God through Jesus. When you run to sexuality to fill you, what you are longing for is the wholeness that only Jesus can bring. Chesterton, I've heard people dispute whether or not he actually said this, but, but I've since it's attributed to him, I'm going with it. That Chesterton said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is hoping God will answer. Because what we're looking for to satisfy us is something only Jesus can bring. And here's the good news. Jesus died for every time you have looked to sex to fill you, married or not. He died for every time you looked to sex to give you an identity, to make you forget life, to get power over others. He died for every one of those. And he's a better Lord this is what Paul means when he says, when he, says uh, when he answers the all things are permissible for me, when he answers it with, but I will not be dominated by anything. What he's saying is, when, when you pursue sexuality in that way, when, when you pursue your sexuality and think, and, and, and think that uh, if I do this, it will give me what I want, then you think sex is serving you, but in fact, you're serving it. And it is a harsh master. Jesus is the only Lord who has loved you completely when you have failed him utterly. He's the only one. Jesus was the offended one and yet went to the cross to bear your offense so you didn't have to. And he freely, by his grace, saves those who have wronged him. So come to him. Come to him. And when you do, sexuality can return to what it was made for. It helps tell a story. 
helps tell a story of God and his people, of Christ and his church. It is not everything. He is. One last thing. If you're here this morning and your past or your present sexually is something that you are ashamed of, join the club. There's a lot of members and we take new ones every day. You probably struggle with feeling dirty or used or that no one can love you. I need you to listen to me. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Verse 20 is so important. He says, you have been bought with a price. Okay? I'm not going to bore you with a ton of grammar. The, the form of that word when he says, have been bought, in Greek means something that happened in the past and continues. Not something that just happened, boom, but something that happened in the past and continues. Therefore, he says, glorify God. We don't glorify God with our bodies to convince him to purchase us. He rescues us. He gives us grace freely, giving that grace to sinners who are broken like me and you. Your sin is great. I get it. But Jesus is a great Savior. He washes us with his blood, makes us the dwelling place of his spirit. He does it all. So bring him your shame and your sin because his shoulders are strong enough to carry them. Would you pray with me? Lord, our, our hearts um, struggle to believe that. Some of us struggle to believe that for ourselves because of the amount of brokenness in our own lives. Some of us refuse to believe that for others because we are convinced we are better than them. And we are not. Lord, I pray that you would press the gospel in on us this morning. I pray for every one of us in this room. Men, women, adults, kids. That you would help us to unmask by the gospel those assumptions that we have about our sexuality that are, that are straight from hell. And that instead, you would help us to trust, to believe not just the gospel that Jesus died for us and, was, and rose again so that we might be, have a, a right status before you, so that we might be satisfied in you, but that we might actually trust that what he says is true and not everything around us. Lord, for the broken this morning who feel their broken, brokenness poignantly, I pray that you would give us uh, relief by the gospel. Let the gospel be a balm for us to know that you have loved us fully in Christ. For those of us who are struggling because either we don't like what the Bible says on this or we're, we're upset because we've never thought ourselves as broken as those people, I pray that you would soften our hearts to trust you and to trust that the gospel is enough even for that self-righteousness. You're a great Savior, and so we lay all these things in your lap, and we ask that you would make this church into a beautiful place where sexuality is celebrated within its context, but not seen as God. And we ask all this in Christ's name.